Good morning. Would you guys please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, or turn on your Bible apps to 1 Peter chapter 2. No judgment. And if you would please stand with me, as is our custom for the reading of God's Word. The Apostle writes, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. You may be seated. In my family growing up, we had a rule or a procedure by which we would determine where we were going to go to eat. Uh, the rule came to be after a variety of failed policies had preceded it, and a number of extensive courtroom dramas had played out in the backseat of the minivan. This, room, this rule was forged in the fires of sibling controversy over many years, so you know it's got to be a good one. And the rule was this. If you shoot down an idea, you've got to come up with a better one. It's a very simple procedure. And it would usually start with someone suggesting their favorite place that they knew there's no chance the other person was going to agree to. So the first one's kind of a dummy suggestion. It's going to get knocked down. Then you offer your suggestion. That gets knocked down until eventually... Somebody suggests a place that no one's got a better idea than, but no one really likes that place either. It's just kind of the compromise option, but it's where we go. And you would think that this procedure might take a while, but it was surprisingly quick because if we ever exceeded a reasonable price range of suggestions, then mom or dad would chime in with, let's just go to McDonald's. That works, right? And addition, in addition to that, you could not suggest an option that has already been shot down. And you only have the amount of time it takes to get to the most recently suggested place to come up with an alternative. So no filibustering. Like I said, this rule was forged in the fires of controversy. Now later in life, I found out that part of what makes this system work so well is a well-established and documented principle called the McDonald's theory. The theory goes that sometimes what you need in order to get the creative juices flowing is to have a really terrible first idea like, let's go eat at McDonald's. Now, writers say something similar. They say, just put words on a page. Artists say, just put paint on a canvas. 
Mom says somebody just freaking pick somewhere already or we're going to eat at McDonald's. Sometimes a terrible idea is what it takes to get the ball rolling. And this sermon is to your advantage, kids and parents, because if you're planning to eat out either for lunch today or sometime in the near future, this is going to help you pick where you all want to go. But kids, a particular word of warning to you, because this procedure only works by your parents starting with a really terrible suggestion. Okay? And you've got to be ready with an alternative because there's a McDonald's on every corner and it's not going to take dad that long to get there. So you've got to be ready with something to present as opposed to it. Or parents, goes both ways, if you're tired of McDonald's, you better have a better bad suggestion ready. So what we have the opportunity to do today is I'm going to give you five seconds in just a moment to have your first suggestion ready. Okay, so I want you to think in your mind, where is the first place I'm going to suggest the next time we go out to eat? We're going to take five seconds starting now. You got it? You have your suggestions? Okay, hold on to those. We're going to come back to those. Thumbs up. Good job. All right. In our text today, the actual reason I'm up here, Peter gives a number of profound descriptions of the Christian life, but they are all based in one central reality, that Jesus is uniquely valuable and we must long for him. The value of Jesus is the root and motivation of everything else he tells us to do in this passage. Now look at verses 1 through 3 with me. He says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now that phrase, pure spiritual milk, Uh, is a very common and familiar one within evangelicalism, but like many common and familiar phrases, it suffers the problem of a common misapplication. So you might be tempted when you hear pure spiritual milk, especially in contrast to solid doctrinal food, you might be tempted to think that pure milk means immaturity, Uh, kind of like in 1 Corinthians or in Hebrews. But that's not really what Peter is doing with this metaphor here. In these verses, Peter both clarifies what spiritual milk really is And he sets the stage for his description of and exhortation to the Christian life later in our text. He writes, Long for the pure spiritual milk by which you grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So what is the pure spiritual milk? The clue is what it tastes like. It tastes like Jesus is good. This is about the appeal of Jesus. This is about longing for Jesus. And if it's about longing for Jesus, then it cannot possibly be something that we ever intend to grow out of. It's the difference between a glass of cold lemonade after a long, hot day of Florida yard work, the kind of glass of lemonade that makes you think you're actually going to survive the summer now, the very refreshing glass, something like that, or maybe like a cup of cough syrup that's good for you, but it tastes so bad it's hard to keep in your mouth for more than two seconds. Now, if somebody offers you a glass of something to drink, you take a swig of it, and your face comes back with a cough syrup pucker. That tells me something about what you just drank. Or to push the metaphor further, if you drink something for months on end, and every time you drink it, your face is pleased, but after a few months, your bones start showing and your teeth start falling out, well, that tells me something about what you drank as well, because pure spiritual milk tastes good, and it helps you grow. If either of those things are missing, then something has gone wrong. And Peter's solution is that we would taste the pure spiritual milk instead, because longing for that milk is the result of having tasted it. 
So Peter says, in order to put away envy and hatred and unkindness, you have to taste and see that Jesus is good. Then in verse 4, he says, as you come to him. Okay, so he's presuming ongoing enjoyment, right? As you come back to him, having tasted the goodness of God, you are being built up into a spiritual house or a temple made up of living, thriving, well-nourished stones. The valuing of Jesus is producing for you the nourishment you need to accomplish the vocation that Jesus has set aside for you. And the vocation is offering spiritual sacrifices made acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you offer sacrifices to what you love. You worship what you love. How are you going to do this, offer these internal spiritual sacrifices, if you have not experienced the goodness of the God you're worshiping? Then he says down in verse 9, Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How are you going to proclaim the excellencies which you have not experienced for yourself? Kids, do you guys still have your lunch picks ready? Keep those in your mind. But how did you come to those picks? When you sat there during that five seconds, how did you determine where you wanted to go to lunch? I bet what you did is you sat there and you thought, what sounds good right now? What would taste really good? What's the best thing I've eaten in the past several months? Can I just suggest Jeremiah's? Is that allowed? You did that because when you're presented with a bad option, the first step is to think back to what you love and let that determine your alternative solution. <clears throat> Have you experienced this before with Christ? Do, do you know that Christ is good? Like reflexively, is it a memory for you when you think back on the things that have brought you the most joy? When someone offers you a bad option, does Christ stick out in your mind as the immediate first and best alternative? We as Christians must taste and see that the Lord is good because the result is that we will long for him and seek him above other things. But how hard it can feel sometimes to get to that point from where you are right now. What if you think you have tasted and it has been good, but it hasn't changed your life yet? Or what if you have tasted and it did transform, but it's been a long time and it's kind of lost some of the appeal over the years? The solution, as any professional taster of things will tell you, is to cleanse your palate and taste again. Anyone who's ever attended a tasting event for like a high-quality wine or cheese or uh, they've been to a really fancy dining place, they can tell you that our palates require some maintenance in order to taste well. And that's why the fancier parts of a fine dining experience past a certain point are not about making the ingredients taste better. They can only get so good. At some point, they start worrying about taking away or removing anything that could introduce a negative or bitter experience or a negative flavor, a bitter flavor, Okay. That's why Peter puts it the way that he does in the beginning of this chapter. Almost as if it was the same idea or action, he tells us to both taste and long for the pure spiritual milk, but also to put away the things which might corrupt the taste. Our sinful hearts are constantly suggesting alternatives to Jesus that will compromise our ability to taste and see that he is good. That's why he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Remove anything that's going to compromise the flavor. Now, I love ice cream, and I love mustard on my hot dogs. But if after lunch today, we go to Jeremiah's, and I get a vanilla ice cream cone, 
I know that's a weird thing to get at Jeremiah's, but just go with it. So I get a vanilla ice cream cone at Jeremiah's, and then I reach into that lunch bag, and I pull out an extra packet of mustard, and I drizzle that mustard on my vanilla ice cream cone, it would be truly revolting. It would be so bad. I'm shuddering just thinking about it. Now, it would not be so bad that I could never enjoy ice cream again. But it would be so bad that I would not be able to taste past the mustard and say, you know, this mustard's not really doing it for me, but this vanilla ice cream is good. In order for me to enjoy the vanilla ice cream at all, I'm going to have to not put mustard on it. Pretty basic, but the principle is one must be left off in order to enjoy the first. Now, the problem is the metaphor breaks down because mustard, for most people, there's nothing inherently wrong with it. But sin is bad. So perhaps a more accurate metaphor would be to say, um, you know, don't put poison on your ice cream. The problem is, most people like mustard, um, but everybody likes sin, okay? And nobody likes poison. Everybody likes sin by default. And when you experience sin and you experience Christ independently, they're both enjoyable, The problem only comes when you try to put them together and enjoy them at the same time. Then you realize you must leave off one and have the other. Let me make it really plain. If you want to enjoy the peace of Christ, then leave off the malice of the Facebook comment section and most of Twitter. If you want to enjoy the truth of Christ, then leave off telling your employer you worked a full day from home when you spent half the morning lounging on Facebook. If you want to enjoy the sufficiency of everything that Christ is and can be for you, then leave off the jealousy of looking at the things your neighbor can still enjoy because they weren't laid off for the quarantine like you were. And if you want to really mean it when somebody asks you, is Christ really worth it? If you want to say, yes, of course he is, then leave off the hypocrisy of merely saying it, merely posting a verse online, merely listening to a song every once in a while, merely going to church. You must taste for yourself today that Jesus is good. The result is that you will long for him. This is Peter's foundational argument. Everything else he says in the rest of this text presumes that you enjoy Christ. So if any part of the rest of the text is challenging, come back to this first step one, that you must value Christ and long for him. So that's the first point. The second point is that his value produces proclamation. Now, out of the three points, which are Christ is valuable, his value produces proclamation, and third, his value creates transformation, Why are they in this order? Why not Christ is valuable, his value transforms us, and the transformation causes us to proclaim? The reality is that is not the order of human experience. Now, if you've ever been around somebody who has converted to Christianity as an adult uh, out of a really difficult life of sin prior, I 100% guarantee you that you're going to hear Jesus and profanity in the same sentences more than you ever have until you're in your entire life up until that point, and it's probably going to last for a while. And then at some point, if they trust you, and if they really get what sin is, they're going to call you. It'll be late at night, most likely, probably on a weeknight, might be a weird amount of time since you've heard from them, and they're going to say, I have really blown it this time. I am such a hypocrite. 
And you need to listen carefully for the order in which the next things come out of their mouth because it's going to tell you a lot. They're either going to say something in this category. Um, I told my friends I got Jesus and then they all saw me at the club drunk last night. I told my friends I got Jesus and then they all saw me doing drugs going home with that girl last night. Or maybe they'll say, I told all the people at church last week that I was a good person like you guys. How are they ever going to welcome me back now that I got knocked up? Or maybe... Just maybe they'll say something in this category like, I told Jesus, I promised him I would never do it again. And I did. How can I ever face him? And in my limited experience, the second option is a substantially better starting point than the first. The order of the points in this sermon is important because the valuing of Christ produces proclamation and transformation at the same time. And the tension between those stages is where grace goes from a one-time get-out-of-jail-free card to a lifetime dependency. And if you think you have left the tension yet, it's more likely that you haven't become dependent yet. The proclamation is validated by the excellencies of the king we proclaim, not by the faithfulness of us as servants. The king is glorified by the faithfulness of the servant. Do you see the difference? Pure actions glorify the king, and they deepen our own enjoyment of him, but they do not authenticate our message. Jesus does not save any less because you looked at porn last night. It does not mean you should go and do it again tonight. What it means is you've got no reason to get your life right before you go and talk to him about it. And that's exactly what you're going to tell your friend on the phone because it's exactly what you've known as long as you've been a Christian, but the words hit different when they come out of your own mouth. It might be the first time you hear that and you think, yes, I know that. That is true. Evangelism and discipleship are valuable not just for the people that are hearing us proclaim the king, but for our own sakes. Look with me, starting in verse 10. Peter writes, Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war on your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they see your good deed, uh, sorry, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Does that prove that the gospel is not authenticated by your innocence? Yes, it does. Does it look like it at first? Not so much. It looks like it says, keep your conduct pure so that they believe you about Jesus and they will turn and repent. That sounds like a perfectly valid Sunday school interpretation. It is dangerously wrong. It is dead wrong. Look at what it actually says. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So first, it presumes they're going to speak against you. It presumes they're going to call you evildoers. That means our job is not to prevent them from doing that. Secondly, it says they may see your good deeds. Now, the word that's used is right before it, keep your conduct honorable. It's translated to honorable. It really is more like beautiful or attractive. Does that make sense? It does not say when they see your lack of sin. It says when they see the presence of beauty in your conduct. It's not what's not there, it's what is there. It is not a sufficient explanation of this text to say that it means merely not sinning. 
It's not like they're going to accuse you of evil and then realize you're not actually doing evil. They were wrong. And then they're going to glorify God because of it. That's not how it works. Neutral sinlessness is boring to the world. They don't care. Positive good deeds wrought out of love, though, that is beautiful. And that, according to the text, leads to the worship of the king. So our vocation is not preventing their slander. It is encouraging their worship. We let the Holy Spirit take care of their slander by opening their eyes to see the good deeds that they may glorify God on the day of visitation, right? It's the Holy Spirit's job to make people see. Okay, what does all amazing food have in common? Pizza, burgers, steaks, what does it all have in common? It smells really good. (laughs) All right, here's the situation. Guys, you're standing at the checkout counter. You've just ordered a triple bacon cheeseburger like the gentleman that you are. The checkout person asks you, small, medium, or large fry, and you're about to answer, but you think, wait. Honey, do you want any fries? And she says, no, I don't feel good. I don't want any fries. You say, baby, are you sure you don't want any fries? She says, yeah, I'm on a diet anyway. I don't need any fries. So you say, okay, I'll have a medium fry. Amateur. So you get your food, you walk your food back to the table, forgot the ketchup. Go back, get the ketchup, bring it back, set it down next to what is now a small fry. Wait. Baby, I thought you said you didn't want any fries. And she says, I didn't want any fries, but they got here, and then it smelled good, and I got hungry, okay? Or if she's honest like my wife is, she'll say, I didn't want my fries, I wanted your fries as an actual quote from last week. It smelled good and I got hungry. Y'all are probably getting tired of my food metaphors at this point, or at least you're really excited about where you're going to go to lunch. Your lunch picks probably involve French fries at this point. Uh, McDonald's has French fries, by the way. Anyway, regardless of where you're going to go to lunch, you better be ready to speak up about it. If you love the place you want to go, you better tell somebody about it. Value produces proclamation. You had it once before. You loved it. You want to go back to it. So now you've got to make others think it's going to be good for them as well. But when it comes to getting others to want it as much as you do, you've got to be able to make it sound good. Peter says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Paul clarifies, you are the fragrance of the good food. In 2 Corinthians 2, he writes, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So the world is perishing. They are stumbling as they were destined to do. They slander you because your lifestyle sounds like death to them. Peter says, make your good works so beautiful that those whom God awakens may see them, may be enticed by them, and may turn and glorify God because of them. The motif here is attractiveness. Shame eventually comes from rejecting Christ, but while it is still called today, Christ is not shaming people into accepting him. He is enticing them, and he's doing it through you. He's not threatening you with shame either, though. He's not saying, get your life right before you talk about me. In fact, 
He says the opposite. He says, proclaim my excellencies, which exceed in magnitude by far your failures. And that's why he mentioned mercy first. In the text, he says, since you have received mercy for your sins, tell everybody about me. And do it in every way that you can, both with your words and your deeds. Just make sure that both are beautiful like I am, so that people see them and are attracted, are enticed to me. This is about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. You see, it's not about how good you or I are. It's about how good Jesus is. This part is not even about putting off sin. The part earlier was about putting off sin. This part is about attraction. Do good deeds for the sake of attraction. Stop sinning for the sake of your own attraction to Jesus. Is that clear? I really want this to be obvious. I don't want you thinking, where did he get that in the text? I want you to think, it's, of course it says that. Why did he spend so much time trying to convince us it says that? It's very obvious. But one barrier to that obviousness is a transition from verse 11 to verse 12. It's tricky because it's two complementary actions for two distinct reasons. He says, first, abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's the first action. Because they wage war against your soul. That's the first reason for the first action. Then the transition, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, that's the second action, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God, that's the second reason. Now, because these reasons are distinct, if you start sinning, it does not mean you should stop proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus, it means you should repent because it's killing you. And that's the transformation part. That part happens during not because of or as a prerequisite to the proclamation. So let's look at the transformation before we close. Starting in verse 6, and I encourage you to look at the text with me here because we're going to jump around in the verses a lot. He says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's a quotation from Isaiah 28. So the honor is for you who believe. Now, honor is the opposite of being put to shame. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, is what it says. That implies they will be honored. So the honor is for the believing ones. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. So the argument goes like this. You believe in Jesus, that he is God's chosen one, and that he is precious, and you will not be put to shame. But if you do not believe that, you will stumble on the offensive rock. You will be put to shame. Then Peter interprets the current events of his day with that passage, not the passage with the current events, mind you. And he says, they, meaning the Jews of his day, stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So those who do believe the word do not stumble. They will not be put to shame. Those that do not believe the word do stumble and are put to shame. What is the word? that he is chosen and precious. That is the word. If you believe he is chosen and precious, you will not be put to shame. But there's even more going on here. This word cornerstone is used twice in this passage, back to back. The first is a quotation from Psalm uh, 118, the second from Isaiah 8 and 28. And what makes it tricky is that it's the same Hebrew word in both places, but the context makes them mean different things. So much so that we have two different English words for them. The words are cornerstone and capstone. Now, cornerstone is the first perfectly square stone that you lay in a foundation that determines the angle of your first two walls. It's very important that it be a square and straight stone. The second stone, the capstone, also called a keystone, 
is the last wedge-shaped stone that you place in the top of an archway to hold it up where the two columns of stone are leaning against it. In our text where it says the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, that's Psalm 118. And the stone of stumbling a rock of offense is Isaiah chapter 8. And the other one laying in Zion a stone of offense, that's Isaiah 28. Now, if you read the Isaiah chapters, it's very clear it means cornerstone and a foundation there because it says a cornerstone of a sure foundation. So that makes it easy. That's a cornerstone. But look at the broader context of Psalm 118 with me. He says, the psalmist writes, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the, and it says cornerstone, but the word also means capstone. And I'm arguing for capstone because ancient gates are set in archways. The psalmist prays, Open to me the gate of righteousness that I may enter in to worship God. Who is the gate of righteousness by which we enter in to worship God? Who has become our salvation? It's Jesus. The psalmist is saying the builders rejected this stone because it was not square, but it wasn't square because it's not cut to be part of a foundation. It's cut to hold up the archway. And Peter is being terribly clever in our text here because he's using both quotations from both places back to back to say that Jesus is both the first stone that you lay by which your foundation is secure and he is the last stone you place by which the gates of salvation are held up. He is the first and the last. In both cases, the builders rejected him and it has become their undoing. They stumble because they disobey the word that he has chosen and precious as they were destined to do. But you, you are not destined to shame. You are chosen for honor. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now you could write five commentaries on those four labels in that one verse. We don't have possibly enough time to examine all of it. It's full of Old Testament imagery, but what I want you to know is that these labels are everything that would have mattered to a Jewish person. Their whole identity was shaped around chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation of people for his own possession. Their time was shaped by attaining and maintaining these labels. Their economy was built on these concepts. They lived, they died, they built houses, they farmed, harvested crops, married people, divorced people, went to battle, killed animals, ate, got dressed, shaved in the morning in specific ways, devoted to being a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a people for his own possession. And here, Peter takes these titles away from And he applies them to Gentile scum who never did anything in their entire wretched, holy, unholy lives to deserve these titles. He's saying the Jews, the builders of the temple, have failed. They are put to shame. They stumbled over the rock. The Gentiles have been made into the very stones of the temple because of the difference that Jesus makes. And that's why we are enabled to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because once we were not a people, now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. You have gone in through the gate of salvation to worship God. Because of that, proclaim the excellencies of him to the world. Now, beloved, 
thoroughly love people. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Do you see the order? Jesus is valuable. Proclaim the excellencies. Abstain from evil. The abstaining and the proclamation are both independently contingent. They depend on the valuing of Jesus. That produces them. And next he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so not shameful, not of that which pertains to stumbling, so that they may believe your proclamation and be saved? No. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. In conclusion, something is at stake here. It is not, however, the authenticity of your message or the salvation of your friends. It is the glory of God in the world. That is first a relief and then it's a terror. But the takeaway here is that your lack of sin is not the authentication of the gospel. It's the result of the gospel. The authentication of the gospel is your beautiful good works. So, in a society that is languishing in violence and sickness and deceit, the first thing that we should be focused on is championing the, the beautiful wisdom and justice and love of God. The last thing that we should be worried about is making sure that we do not look bad. A minute ago, we agreed that not sinning does not cut it as an interpretive framework for this passage, so let's apply that to the current situation. In a culture where racism and hatred have existed for centuries and caused great pain, Peter's exhortation to us is not to declare ourselves innocent of racism in order to bring the gospel to bear on the situation. His exhortation to us is to not just be innocent, but to be beautiful in the opposite way. You cannot merely not hate. You must love. The apostle does not say be innocent and prove it. He says be innocent and do something confrontationally beautiful. Confront the sin with beautiful good works, not with defensive claims of innocence. It is two months later. Have people seen the way that you reacted to the unjust death of a man at the hands of law enforcement and thought that reaction was beautiful? That reaction is better than what I've got. I want that. Or have they seen your reaction and thought, riots and looting is not great, but at least it's something. And something is better than the Christians who sit around all day making sure people know that their robes are unstained. Murder is bad enough to provoke a reaction from the world, but without Christ, it will not be a good one. That's where we come in. Historically, the world's solution to racism has been violence and rioting. That is the undesirable choice you are offered. What do you do when you are presented with an undesirable choice? You look back on what you love, you let that determine your next actions, and you present the better alternative. That is the gospel message of reconciliation. And the thing about demonstrating the gospel is that it's not sufficient to merely shoot down the alternative option and preserve your own innocence. You must present the beautiful alternative. Where people have previously rejected and stumbled over Christ because of their own ignorance, you are now called to show him for who he is, which is chosen and precious. But what is needed for you in order to suggest that better alternative? You have to have experienced it. You've got to know Jesus before you can offer Jesus to someone else. 
And I don't just mean know of him or know about him. I certainly don't mean used to know him. You've got to love Jesus in the moment you extend his love to another person. If you want to mean it when you offer Jesus, you've got to know Jesus. So that is the invitation for us today. Taste and see that the Lord is good and keep your deeds among the world beautiful so that one day some of them might glorify God because of your love on the day of visitation. In two minutes, you're going to walk out that door and you're going to be presented with a litany of bad options. We all need to be ready with a beautiful alternative. This is the time to taste again and remember that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are dependent, radically dependent, on you sending Holy Spirit into our hearts to open our eyes and see the value of Christ, that others might see that value reflected in us. So we pray that you would, in Jesus, demonstrate to us everything that we need to be satisfied and to be filled with love for him and for other people. We cannot do this on our own. We need it from you. So we ask you to be all that you are for us through the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.